good to be with you this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you have a Bible, and I hope you have a Bible, would you open up with me to the book of Judges? I am so thankful to be in this space. I am grateful. I woke up this morning thanking God that uh, many of our men right now are away at man camp. I didn't name it that. Uh, And they are having a great time, and they'll be returning men at the same time. Our uh, women are here today, and we have a wonderful women's uh, kind of relaunching of our women's ministry, which has been prayed about and desired for quite some time, and we are really excited that we've got women who are here today who are going to spend time together. If you're a woman and you didn't RSVP for that event, I want to tell you we want to invite you anyway, so if you're here and you're new or new-ish and you just want to connect with other women who love the Lord and want to pursue Him, then you have a wonderful opportunity to do that just following this service today. All right, so men's ministry, women's ministry, off and running, thankful for that. We're in a building that has been a blessing for us thus far, and we have been preaching on and through the book of Judges. And we began our journey through Judges two weeks ago. In that first week, we began to unpack a book that causes many people, I think, to wonder why Judges, or uh, why would we go through this Old Testament book It's really a book about God's faithfulness, and we think it's an important time in our church to, uh, in the fall, uh, reflect on this old text and to see our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. That is our story of our life, isn't it? Our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, and so we'll see that. Last week, Austin took us through Judges chapter 2. Um, where he reminded us of the consequences of forgetting. That, that with each generation that hears the gospel and hears the good news about what God has done, that if we do not make a habit and a discipline out of instructing the next generation, that it is likely, or at least possible, that the next generation will forget what God has done. And, uh, and for Israel in the book of Judges, they have already, when we pick up our text, forgotten what God has done. Not that they're completely unaware of their history, but rather they no longer live in light of the truth of what God has done. And that cycle begins and continues all through the book of Judges. Well, this morning, my task is ambitious Uh, For if you are reading that small text clearly, you'll see that our goal is to cover almost two full chapters, all of three, all of four, and all of five. Um, And we won't read all of it, but we will read a lot of Bible this morning. So I want to remind you, if you're here and your posture is, oh no, I'm not looking for a church that reads the Bible, we might not be the church for you. Um, But if you are here because you've come to hear from God and not me, then I think maybe uh, you will, in fact, hear from him. All right, before we get started, let me me frame how I think uh, I want to spend our time together this morning. I want to think about, and I want you to think about how qualified you feel in your life. I would argue that sometimes we feel overqualified. 
but that's often rare. Maybe someone at work asks you to do something, and you're like, of course I can do that. Who do you think I am? Maybe your spouse asks you to do something, and, and you look at them going like, of course I can do that. I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I've been, I know how to do this thing. Don't look at me like I'm incompetent. Sometimes in our lives, we feel overqualified. But often, if not the majority of the time, I suspect that we feel underqualified. That we, we feel like some of you are in jobs, and I wonder if you feel this sense of, I don't really know what I'm doing. The thing that I need to do or I've been asked to do, I, I think I could maybe get there, but at least right now, I, I feel underqualified. Or maybe um, it's that moment when you read all the parenting books, what to expect when you're expecting, what to expect in the first year after you've expected. Maybe you've just read a bunch, and then you had a child, and you realize, I feel underqualified for this task. Or maybe you got married, and you, had, you stood across from one another, you held hands, and you said, for better or for worse. And what you meant was, for better. <laughs> and then for worse came. And you felt like, whoa, I am underqualified for this moment. I wonder if you feel underqualified. In the book of Judges, this morning, we're going to look at some underqualified heroes. Some, some people who don't think that they can do it, who are not sure that they have what it takes, from some unlikely heroes. And God uses those who are underqualified often to do great things. If you start reading your Bible from cover to cover, you'll discover that it's often not the person who says, I am qualified, God. I'm the man. I'm the one you're looking for that God chooses. It's often the one that God chooses who starts with, I don't think I can do this. I don't know how to do this. I only see my weaknesses. And if you read the Bible, you'll discover God loves to use our weaknesses. So this morning, I'm going to look at three heroes Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. Three Clark Kents, if you will. Clark Kent, the alter ego of Superman, right? Who is supposed to be so unassuming, so we don't, there's no way. We, we are so certain that Clark Kent cannot possibly be Superman that a pair of glasses fools us, right? That's the idea behind that character. And, and, and you're supposed to look at Clark Kent and go, this can't possibly be the hero. And that's kind of what we will see in this book. And in looking at this book, we believe, especially in the text today, that God, we hope, and are asking God to speak to us about what he would have for us as we move forward. Three lessons from three heroes. We'll think of it that way. We left off last week if reading the, all the way up to Judges chapter 3, verse 6. And this morning, hopefully you've had enough time to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, verse 7. 
We'll begin our morning by talking about Othniel, and Othniel's story is in Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. So you can follow with me in this story. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharayim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Othniel's story begins with God's people forgetting. And again, it's not that they are unaware of God delivering them through the Red Sea. It's just that they no longer lived as though God was in charge. They no longer knew him or remembered how to walk in his ways. And what happens because of that is that God, who had warned them to get rid of the Canaanites out of the promised land, are ultimately captured by a man whose name is Kushan Rishathaim. His name means the twice wicked one, the double wicked one. Not just wicked, super wicked is what his name means. So before you're tempted to side with him, let me remind you who you're siding with. He is in charge and he uh, sort of oppresses God's people for eight long years. God's people cry out and there's a deliverer. His name is Othniel. Now we've met Othniel before. If you've read through Judges with us and you go back to Judges chapter 1, you'll find that there we first meet Othniel. He is Caleb, who is an awesome hero. Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, he has a son named Othniel. And when you meet Othniel in both Judges 1 and here in Judges 3, you are meeting someone who is described as Caleb's younger brother's son. Nice to meet you. Caleb's younger brother's son. Have, have you ever had that feeling before? Oh, you're, um, you're so-and-so's younger brother. You're so-and-so's sister. Oh, you're so-and-so's uh, uh, wife, spouse, husband. You, you're, oh, you're not, you're not the person. You're just the lower person. You imagine that Othniel has experienced his life that his, his lineage is that he is 
Caleb's younger brother's son. And you imagine that he carried around with him this feeling that he isn't quite what they are. Years ago, I took um, my kids to a Broadway play at the Pantages. And when you get ready to go to the Pantages and see something on Broadway, some people make a habit of knowing nothing. I am a review reader. Am I the only one in the room who, before I see a movie or goes to a play, I want to read the reviews? Anyone else do that by show of hands? Review readers? Good. Some of us, all right, reluctant review readers. I like to know, is it going to be good? What do the critics say? What does the audience say? And I remember reading for this particular production, um, you're just, you can't believe how good the lead actress is. I think it was Wicked. We're going to go see Wicked. Can't believe how good the lead actress is. And I remember getting so excited, and we showed up to see the lead actress, and we got in, they give you your playbill, and you open it up, and you look for that name of that person you're so excited to see, and then it says, for tonight's performance, we have the understudy. And everybody goes, all right. That's how you feel about Othniel, right? He's kind of the understudy. He's kind of the person you're not expecting. He's the young one. Not Caleb, not Caleb's younger brother, but Caleb's younger brother's son. He's the one who you'd look at and go, really? You? You're the one? And yet that is the point of Othniel. The most important thing about Othniel isn't about Othniel. It's that if you read Judges 3, you'll see that God says, the Lord, after his people cried out, the Lord raised a deliverer. The Lord gave him his spirit. The Lord gave him victory. The Lord is the one who is the champion of Othniel. Othniel may have thought, I am just an understudy. But under God, he became a hero of God's people. You may feel like you are an understudy. You may feel that you are too young, too ill-equipped to do the task that God has called you to do. But let me be clear, what God calls you to do, God will see through that you do, but only by his power and his spirit. I love that it says about Othniel that, that the Lord's spirit was upon him. If you are called into any position where you want to do something great for God, you should be asking God every day to fill you with his spirit. Every day, because you leak. Every day. And so every day you need him to fill you with his spirit so that you can do what God has called you to do only by and through his hand on your life. There's a lot of asking today about how to be a good leader. Lots of books you can read about how to be good leaders, great leadership books. I would offer that what the church needs and what the world needs is not good leaders, but godly leaders. And godly leaders are those who see that the most important thing about them isn't them. It's God. 
Let me ask you this morning, is your career about you? Is your family about you? Is your success about you? You cannot escape that for us, Neil, it's not. It's about God. And so let me press you this morning and challenge you to bring yourself to God, to ask Him to direct your steps, to see your own inadequacies, and to recognize that God does great things with people who offer themselves up to Him. Israel has peace for 40 years until Othniel dies. And I got to imagine that when you're reading the text, you're feeling like, man, things are so great. And then Othniel died. He was a great leader. In fact, in all of the book of Judges, he's the only one we don't see any real flaws with. And, uh, and he's kind of the paradigm for the rest of the judges in the book of Judges. But Othniel dies. And you got to wonder if some of the people were wishing that they had a leader that could not be defeated by death. I wish we had a leader like that, don't you? We'll get there. That's Othniel. Our second hero in Judges is Ehud. Ehud is one of my favorite Bible stories. You, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about Ehud. So I was so excited to go through Ehud with you. We're going to read a larger section of text, but the story preaches itself. It's wonderful. My illustrations, I won't be using a lot of illustrations this morning because the text illustrates itself. So our second judge that we are introduced to, which just means, again, if you're here, judge just as a leader, a leader or a hero of God's people is Ehud. This is Ehud's story right after Othniel dies. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. The son, why is that funny? The son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, about 18 inches, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle 
sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. (laughs) Judges, am I right? Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind them and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he didn't open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And they saw their Lord fall into the floor While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syria. When they arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. The second hero we're introduced to is Ehud. Forty years, they have been good under Othniel, and then Moab, the king of Moab, comes in, takes them over. He rules for 18 years. They cry out, and they get Ehud. Now, when you read Ehud, you all laughed at him being left-handed. And that's kind of funny because he would also have been mocked for being left-handed. The actual rendering of the word left-handed in the Bible, in the NIV it renders it as left-handed, but the actual text is that he was unable to use his right hand. So the interesting thing about Ehud is that he has a disability. For some reason, his right hand is maybe deformed or it's just unable to work, so he's forced to use his left hand. Now what's really interesting, and you maybe didn't notice this, is that Ehud, who can't use his right hand, is from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means from the right hand. So so Ehud is actually, he's actually from the right-handed tribe, and he can't use his right hand. He is, he has some sort of deformity, some sort of disability that forces him to use his left hand. And because he uses his left hand, he, he is able to save God's people. He interacts with this king of Moab, who is sort of a Jabba the Hutt-like figure in the Bible, right? The, the notice that the writer of Judges wants you to see that him being fat is not a small detail. And Ehud is sent to go visit this great king, and he goes with a tribute. He pays his tribute. But Ehud is so viewed as insignificant and as unthreatening that when Ehud returns, first of all, no one checks for his dagger, which is on the, the wrong side. Remember, everyone else would have their dagger on this side. Ehud carries it on his right thigh. That's a key detail. Um, no one suspects that Ehud has a dagger. No one suspects that he's dangerous. The king is so certain that he is un- not dangerous that he dismisses everybody to hear this message from Ehud. 
And here is this man named Ehud, who is extraordinarily brave and who is able to end the life of this vicious king to lead God's people into victorious battle and to lead them and give them peace for 80 years. Ehud is a hero. And Ehud has a disability. And we don't often talk about how God teaches that disability does not disable you from being used powerfully by God. You may have some things about you that you see as disabling. You may see some things about you that maybe physical deformity. Maybe, um, Maybe you've got some things about yourself that you don't like. You've got some weaknesses. Everyone is trying to hide their weaknesses. We live in a world where no one wants to put their weaknesses on display. Um, recently, there's a new app moving through the youths in our culture called Be Real, which is a social media app that's designed to try to get people to show everyone else what their lives actually look like and not the curated version of their highlights that everybody shows all the time. And that's because we don't like to show the world our weaknesses. But the New Testament teaches that in 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, that's why for Christ's sake I delight, Paul says, in weaknesses. I delight in weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What are your disabilities? In God's hands, your disability becomes possibility. In fact, to God, availability is more important than ability. Availability is more important than ability. In the Bible, weak, weak is strong. Maybe you have a physical disability that has kept you from doing something and you try to hide that. Maybe you've got a a non-physical disability. Maybe you've got an emotional disability. You've gone through something and it's wounded you and you hide it and you don't want anyone to know about it. Maybe for some of you, you have a spiritual disability. You've had a temptation that you've been defeated by again and again and again. And in every way, shape, or form, you don't like these things about yourself. And I wish that you would see this morning that when we take the things, even our weaknesses and the things that we do not like about ourselves, and we offer them up to God, and we say, God, here are my weaknesses, that God often uses those things in powerful ways in the lives of his church and in his kingdom. I have seen countless of people who've gone through traumatic experiences, who it was when they started sharing their story that other people were then helped by this thing that they previously saw as a weakness. I have met people who have struggled with some of the same sins over and over and over again. And it was the moment that they started getting honest with their brothers and sisters in Christ about the things that they've struggled with and the ways that God has helped them that they were able to see that what they had gone through was something that God wanted to use to help others. We try to hide our weaknesses. God wants to use them. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And so this whole thing feels weird. I imagine that Ehud was made fun of. 
imagine he was teased for being weird. Well, we're the right-handers. You can't use your right hand. You're an outsider and an outcast. You don't fit in. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian. You feel like, I don't fit in. I I don't know what I have to offer. When your life is given to God in service to God, when you receive and trust in what God has done for you, He can and often does use what you see as weaknesses or weirdness to further expand His kingdom. Amen? Amen. So that's Ehud. Our last judge I want to spend a few moments with this morning is Deborah. And we'll just look at the first five verses of Deborah, and then I'll sort of outline the rest of the story. Judges 4, 1 through 5. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who never should have been there if they had done what they were supposed to do who reigned in Hazor. Sisera is the commander of his army, and he was based in Harasheth Hagayim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife, of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. After 20 years of oppression, we meet a woman, a great woman of God named Deborah, a judge. God raised up Othniel, God raised up Ehud. God raised up Deborah. And Deborah is listed first as a prophetess. Her role and responsibility is to speak the very words of God to God's people. That's the role she plays. She preaches the word of God. She teaches the word of God. She counsels and gives guidance through wisdom. And Deborah notices that there's a problem. And namely that problem is This guy named Jabin, and he has a big army, Canaanite leader, and his army is led by this other guy named Sisera. So Deborah, in her great wisdom, she goes to a guy named Barak, and she says, Barak, would you lead the army to go and defeat Jabin and the Canaanites? Take 10,000, defeat Sisera, the commander. And Barak says, all right, I'll do it, Deborah but you, you're our leader. You got to come with me. So she says, okay, I'll come with you. So Barak and the 10,000 go to battle against the Canaanites and they win the battle. And as they win the battle, there's the guy who's Sisera, the commander, a great big general. He flees from the battlefield. He flees all the way into meeting another woman named Jael who has a tent nearby. And this woman, Jael, is an Israelite, and she meets this commander, Sisera, who's exhausted from his journey, and she invites him in. And Jael says, would you like a blanket? And he says, oh, I'd love to rest. She gives him a blanket. She puts a blanket on him. She says, would you like some milk? And he says, oh, I'd love some milk. So she gives him some milk. And Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, 
falls asleep in the tent of Jael. And Jael, this woman of God, takes a tent spike, puts it on his temple, hammers it through his head, and kills him. This is a big chapter for women in Judges chapter 4. In Judges chapter 4, you get Deborah, you get Jael, you get the defeat of Sisera and his crazy death, the spike in his head. And then Judges chapter 5, if you're interested, we're not going to read that text, but you should read it maybe this week. It's Deborah's song and Barak's song, a mostly Deborah's song, just singing about all of chapter 4 and what God has done. Um, it, it's amazing that when you read the Bible, you see that the history of God's people is filled with strong women doing great things for God. Now, there's this weird myth that exists, which is like theology is for the boys, and that girls and women, they kind of show up and they make things pretty. And I think that's nonsense. I think that too often, even in the church, the women can often be treated as sort of second-class citizens, as sort of one-dimensional members of the kingdom of God. And I will just make very clear to you, um, I did not marry a one-dimensional woman. Um, I do not have a one-dimensional daughter. And I do not anticipate or desire in any way, shape, or form for our church to make one-dimensional women. We want our women to be godly women. Amen? Amen? We need godly wives and godly mothers and godly sisters and godly friends and, yes, godly women who are exercising godly leadership. Amen? Amen? Now, at the same time, in the Bible, it is true that God says that there are roles that God wants men to play and women to play. Deborah does not lead the army. Barak does. And while Deborah is a prophet and a leader, and we see women who are prophets in the Old Testament, and we see women who are leaders in the Old Testament, there's another role in the Old Testament. It's the role of the priest. And women in the Old Testament were not called to be priests. That is a role that God has for men. In the same way, the New Testament teaches that the role of pastor or elder is a role that God designs for men. The Bible does not say that women are less gifted than men. In no way, shape, or form does it say that. It doesn't say that women should never do any leading or any teaching. That's nonsense. And it certainly does not absolve you women of the responsibility to be godly women. In fact, the Bible is way more pro-women than the world is. But here's my issue. Some churches give the impression that men and women are interchangeable, that they're the same, and that there's no differences between them. They stand in opposition to God when they teach that. And other churches often treat women as though they are second-class citizens, also in opposition to God. I'm just going to go with the Bible. The Bible teaches that there is um, equality between men and women in their position before God, both made in the image of God, both reflecting the glory of God. Equality in their giftedness. There aren't some gifts that are only given to women and some gifts that are only given to men. Men and women can both be equally gifted. Equality in godliness, but differing roles in the family, 
and in the church. I, I want to just say to you women especially that you can be sisters and women um, obviously, you're women, but you can be sisters, and you can be mothers, and you can be daughters, and you can be friends, and you can be godly leaders, and also respect God's order. Now, I'll be clear that our church does not need less Debras. We need more. We need women of courage, women of wisdom, women of leadership. All of chapter 5 is Deborah's great song. And she begins in that, she says, it's good for Israel when the princes lead. She says that. She says, Deborah says, we need men to be men. And I would affirm that as well. While most of this section is affirming you women, I hope you've heard me clearly, I also want to speak briefly to the men. The last thing our church needs or the world needs is passive men. Deborah, in chapter 5, and you can read it for yourself, she praises the men who show up to battle. And she mocks the men who sit on the sidelines and hang out by the ships. Men, God has given you a crucial role to play, a role that cannot be replicated by anyone else. And if your family and this church are going to praise the Lord, it's going to depend to depend on your leadership. Every sociological study points to the fact that the leadership of the father is the greatest determining factor in how kids turn out. For instance, if a child is the first one to become a believer in a home, there is a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will become Christian. If the mother is the first one to become Christian in the home, there is a 17% chance that the rest of the family becomes Christian. But if the father becomes Christian first, there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family becomes Christian. Men, you were made to be a man on purpose. You were made to be a godly husband and a godly father if God calls you into those roles. We have too many boys and too many dudes. And what we need are godly men. We need men to be men and women to be women. And we all need men and women to have the courage of Deborah. Like Deborah, are you leading? Are you serving? Are you living into who God has called you to be? There are three judges in the chapters we've covered. Othniel reminds us that leadership begins with God and not with us. Ehud reminds us that our disabilities in the hands of God are possibilities. Deborah reminds us it takes great courage to lead. I hope this morning in some way, shape, or form, the Holy Spirit has convicted you. I hope that you cry out. When Israel cries out, God sent a leader. God sent a judge. Over and over again, when Israel cries out, God sends a judge and a leader. Othniel was good, but he died. Ehud was unexpected, but he died. Deborah was courageous. She died. Over and over again in the book of Judges, we will see our need for a godly leader. Godly like Othniel, but one who would never die. Unexpected like Ehud, but one who could defeat our enemy. One who, like Deborah, is a prophet filled with courage. 
And we don't live in the time of judges, and we don't have to ask for another judge because God has sent us a judge that's better than Othniel, better than Ehud, better than Deborah. God has sent us Jesus. The whole book of Judges is about Jesus. It's about God's people in rebellion, God's people crying out, and God sending a deliverer. If you're here this morning, and you have been in rebellion, and you cry out, I want to let you know you don't have to wait for another judge. God has sent his good judge. His name is Jesus. Jesus defeated the enemy that was greater than the king of Moab. He defeated death itself. He came and he took on flesh. He lived among us. He took your sin and my sin, your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness. And our unfaithfulness is not just a laughing matter. It's a genuine problem. Too often we tell people, God loves you. And they start with, of course he does. I'm very lovable. Our view is very different. We start with the view that God made us in his image, that God made us good. He made us in right relationship with him. But we are disobedient. None of us in here is obedient. None of us in here is good. And God has every right to stand at a distance from us and say, if heaven is a place where you get my holiness, you get my goodness, you get my glory, you in your rebellion, you in your disobedience, you in your sinfulness, you, you can stay away. But God is not just a good judge. He's also the one who loves us enough to be born among us, to die on the cross for our sin. He takes death onto himself so that every one of your sins could be forgiven. He's buried and rises again on the third day, declaring that he is the world's true judge. He is the judge that never dies. This whole book is about Jesus. If you leave this morning thinking somehow that the message or the point of my message is primarily about what you need to do differently, then you've missed the point. The main point of the book of Judges is that we are unfaithful and God is so faithful that we need a judge and God has sent one, that we need someone to heal us, to save us, to forgive us and redeem us, and God has, and his name is Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Judges and the way in which Judges point us to you. We thank you that you chose Othniel, that you chose Ehud, that you chose Deborah. We thank you that there are lessons that we can learn about each of them. And at the same time, Father, we thank you that this book isn't primarily about the lessons we need to learn, but it's about you being the true judge and the true deliverer in the midst of our rebellion. So God, I know that in our room right now sit people who are really distant from you. Some of them have never known your goodness. They've never experienced you as the judge who rightfully sentences them to death and then rightfully offers them grace and forgiveness and a way to escape that. They've never really seen how glorious you are. We've minimized our sin, and in doing so, we've minimized your love. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that our sin is great, your love is greater. That we desperately need a savior and that you've sent us one. That Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. That the greatest enemy we would ever have to face, death itself, has been defeated by Jesus. That every single one of our sins can be forgiven. So Lord, I pray that we would first come to you, we put our hope and trust in you, and then we would live in light of what you have done for us. May we see our disabilities as an opportunity for great strength in your kingdom. 
May when other people look down on us because we are too young, see that you can do great things when we make ourselves available to you. And may we have the courage and bravery of someone like Deborah. May we lead our families and homes the way you have designed us to. And may we do it for your kingdom and for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.